1: All
0: right, folks. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a special guest. We have somebody joining us from down under, from all the way from Sydney, Australia. We have Mark LaMonica, who is the Director of Individual Research at Morningstar. He is here to talk to us about the craziness in the markets and some other fun stuff. So, Mark, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. guess let's start talking about what's going on in the market. That should
2: occupy us for a little bit. Yeah, no exactly and thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. So, yeah, it's obviously been a uh, it's been an interesting time, you know. I think I probably don't have to tell people what's uh, what's going on because it is on the front page of every newspaper, but yeah, I mean, I think if we go back to the fourth quarter of last year, we sort of started seeing some of the most speculative shares, so really small cap growth shares start to dive. And, you know, these were really companies that had no fundamentals, right? Had no earnings and that is spread. So, you know, starting in, uh, starting in kind of January, we started to see that creep up. It got into mid cap growth and then it got into large cap growth. And, you know, based on the run that we've gone on in the past couple of years, it's those large cap growth companies that make up so much of the big indexes. So especially if we sit there and look at the S&P 500 and that sort of brought the market down. And, you know, I will say that I think what has happened so far has really been, a valuation-driven bear market. You know, we we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet huge falls in earnings. We really just saw the market reprice shares. So at the end of the day, that's really what's happened. Market looked at the valuation levels and have adjusted them, and we'll sort of see what happens next. I mean, I'm a little bit worried about this next stage, but that's what we've seen so far.
1: It is interesting. Like, is the tail wagging the dog or is the dog wagging the tail. Today, as we record this, we heard the Fed talk about raising by 75 basis points, which is 0.75%. Now, by the time this goes live, that'll probably be old news and we'll be talking about the next rate hike. <laughs> but you know, is our interest rate move something that investors should be worried about? Is it interest rate plus earnings coming down that they should be worried about? Or should they be focusing on something Completely outside of what we see with the news headlines.
2: Yeah, let's go back and talk about what's happened. So basically, you know, we had central banks around the world saying it was going to be years before interest rates were going up. And when that changed, I think, you know, the market sat there and the way that we value shares, right? We look at cash flows and we project cash flows into the future and we discount them back to the present. And that discount rate, Is, and people use different things, but you know, it is driven by interest rates. So that's where we saw that repricing of valuation levels. Now, that is anticipated, right? The market is forward looking. But I think the issue we have now with interest rates is the reason obviously they're getting raised is to slow the economy. And so that's, I think, the next concern, and I sort of see the next leg down, and I do think the market will keep falling. I think the next leg down will be driven by earnings, right? So, you know, if we sit there simplistically and look at a price-to-earnings ratio, we've seen that price change. Earnings haven't really been hit yet. And, you know, I think sort of the two problems we're going to run into if we look at if we look at things from the earnings side is, you know, number one, we need to realize that if you go back over the past decade a lot of the earnings growth that we've seen has been driven by margin expansion. So basically when we talk about margin, a company sells goods and services and then they have a bunch of different expenses and then something comes out the bottom, right, earnings. And so we haven't really seen earnings growth from selling a lot more. We haven't seen huge revenue growth and we're looking at the aggregate here. But what we have seen is margin expansion. And so, you know, that margin expansion has come from a different Places like number one, obviously, there were the Trump tax cuts. So, that is one way corporate tax cuts. That's one way we've seen margin expansion. We've also seen it from sort of the continued effects of globalization. And you know, at the end of the day, we've seen offshoring and outsourcing. We've seen sort of a lot of efficiency in supply chains, right? This sort of just in time notion of you're building a car and all the goods show up that day, you build a car and that's great, you don't carry inventory. And a lot of that is unwinding, right? Like if we sit there and look at everything that's going on, we're not going to get another tax cut. You know, I don't think anywhere around the world governments are saddled with a ton of debt from all of the stimulus during COVID. So we're not getting a tax cut. A lot of the globalization piece is unwinding. Right. Like we hear about this disruption to supply chains and that it's temporary. But, you know, I think a lot of countries got caught off guard during COVID where they couldn't get things. And there's a big companies and countries are talking about, okay, now we're going to onshore things again and try to be a little more independent. Obviously, there's the continued trade war with China. There's, you know, Russia, like this globalization story is kind of falling apart. So, you know, my concern is and also. Obviously, inflation, right? You know, we don't know. It's very difficult to manage a business with high inflation. And so I think we're going to start to see that margin compression. And, you know, we'll see what happens with the economy. That's just on the revenue side. We'll see what happens with that. But I think we're going to start to see this margin compression because historically it's just been way higher than we've ever seen in history, right? If you go back and look at the margin levels, like they, should revert to the mean. And I think that's going to be our problem.
1: So you say that you think the market's going to go down. It's quite likely that it goes down in the next months to follow. Do you think that means individual investors, average investors should be selling? Uh, What kind of mindset should they be approaching the next three months, six
2: months? Yeah. I mean, I think, listen, it's an easy story to sit there and, you know, this is, you know, me saying I think the market's going to go down is not exactly a a bold prediction at this point. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's all about your goals. And, you know, I know personally that, you know, my goals are far away. I have not been selling over the past couple of years. I've built up more cash. So I, I can't say I've been putting any more money in. So the savings that I've had, I've built up in cash. I turned off, and this is me personally. This has nothing to do with Morningstar. I have turned off all the dividend reinvestments plans in my accounts for the past couple of years, so I've been building up cash. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a time to buy, but also, you know, I haven't been selling things, right? You know, I was thinking the other day that this is the third bear market I've gone through since I started investing. Fourth, if you count that COVID one, which didn't really count because it was a month, but. You know, I think it's focusing on your goals and it's figuring out, you know, as an investor, what are you comfortable actually buying? And, you know, I think that's an underappreciated part of investing is that, you know, the, the biggest advantage, the biggest piece of edge, if we want to use uh, sort of finance terms, biggest piece of edge we have as individual investors is the ability to have a long-term outlook. And in order to do that, you need to be comfortable, you need to own things you're comfortable with. And not sell when they fall. So I think that's kind of my advice. Figure out what kind of investor you are, figure out what you're comfortable with.
1: Kind of taking that approach of, you know, looking at the landscape and obviously, like you said, margins are historically high. It's very possible they could revert to the mean and we have inflationary pressures, all these pressures that could eat at profits. Are there certain sectors or kinds of companies that are potentially not as impacted as as it may sound like are going to be impacted in aggregate?
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, the easy the easy answer to that and the answer that everyone has is, you know, in inflationary times, commodities do very well. So if you start looking at resource shares and, you know, sitting here in Australia, there are a lot of resource shares. So, you know, we start to look at miners and oil producers, like traditionally they have done really well, you know what I would say is kind of taking a step back, you know, we need to think about what are the companies. And when we talk about margin, what are the companies that are going to be able to protect that? And so, you know, who has pricing power and at Morningstar, you know, what we look at is moat and, you know, it's a term that Buffett popularized and, you know, it's actually a rating that our analysts give. And those are companies with sustainable competitive advantages. So I think, you know, those are the companies that over time will, Do well. And, you know, it's not, you know, if we look at sort of the craziness that's happened in the past couple of years, you know, those have not been the companies that have done particularly well, not the ones that have been popular with investors because, you know, that sustainable competitive advantage, it accrues over time. And, you know, I think those are the companies that should be able to protect their margin, should be able to pass on those costs to consumers and should come out, should come through this thing. Okay.
0: Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system. Until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending. Allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. is my GPS for money. Monarch is a top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, Yeah, that's a great point. So, how should an individual investors look for companies that have those kinds of sustainable advantages or moats? You know, besides Morningstar's you know great charts. You know, as somebody that's just looking for where can I turn to find these kinds of companies, what what kinds of things would you suggest?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's it's an interesting one. So, you know, number one, I think it is, and we believe at Morningstar in fundamental research, sort of the approach we take. And, you know, what I will say about investing, there's lots of different approaches that work, right? Sort of finding the one that you're comfortable with. So, and fundamental research is really, it's studying the companies, it's studying the dynamics of the industry they operate in. And, you know, I know that's sort of a vague answer, but I think it's really understanding the company, it's understanding their competitors, understanding that competitive environment. And then you actually see it when you look at financial statements as well. I think that's an important thing to say. And there's kind of two different ways that you see it. Like margin is certainly one. So, you know, going back there and looking at, and go back 10 years, right? Like, you know, this obviously, uh, needs to be a long-term study. Go back and look at the margin. Are they able to maintain and potentially expand their margin? That can be an indication that they do have a moat. And the other place it shows up is return on invested capital. So basically what return on invested capital is measuring is, you know, when a business reinvests in itself, what return are they getting? That is what a CEO's job is, is to sit there and allocate capital. So the capital that they are putting back into the business, what return are they getting? And what we want to see from a Moat perspective, and sorry for using all this finance jargon, but what we want to see is we want to see a return on invested capital over the long term that is higher than their cost of capital. So very simply what that means, if we think about If we're running a small business that we want to go borrow money at 5% and we want to invest it in a company and earn 10%, right? And over time, that difference – and that's obviously a pretty big difference, but over time, that difference is what accrues to shareholders. And what we see in general, if we think about capitalism, what is capitalism? It is competition, And what that means is it's supposed to benefit us as a consumer, right? So companies are out there and they compete in two ways. They try to build a better product, which benefits us because we get better stuff. And also they're going to compete on price. So that benefits us that we get stuff for cheaper. Now, that's really good for us as consumers. It's really bad for companies. So sort of that constant competition investing in creating better products and services, and then lowering prices as much as possible. So that's not great for a company. So generally, what companies will do is they will drive down that return on invested capital until it hits their cost of capital, right? And then it's just this company that serves sort of self-perpetuating, right? They borrow at 5%, they invest, and they earn 5%. And, you know, that's fine. They'll stay in business. And that's great. But we want companies that are investing and actually able to fend off that competition and earn a higher return.
0: Yeah, I was reading something recently that somebody suggested looking for companies that kind of wean into these hard times. In other words, they hire more people, they invest more money, they acquire more businesses, it's just looking to take advantage of The downturn in their competition and they can benefit from that. And it may bloody them a little bit in the short term, but in the long term, they'll come out ahead.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of junk out there. You know, if you sit there and you look at, you know, the most speculative parts of the market have done well since that kind of COVID market crash. And these are companies that don't make any money. And, you know, they, we've got companies that don't make any money. We've got companies that are heavily reliant on borrowing money. These sort of this notion of these zombie companies that are just kind of going out there and just borrowing money. And that's how we're raising it through venture capital and everything else. It's just shoveling money out to people like those are the companies that are in trouble. But, yeah, I think you're right that there are certainly opportunities out there and companies that do have. That are in a strong financial position and that are looking ten years down the road and not trying to pay their employees for the next couple of years, like those are the companies that will do well and they can take advantage of these opportunities.
0: Yeah, the thing that I think is interesting about the stock market is that the when we go through situations like this where we have a bear market or, you know, the startings of a bear market, that everybody kind of runs for the hills. And when we go to the store, we all wanna buy stuff on sale, but for whatever reason, we don't wanna buy things on sale in the stock market. And I've never quite understood that.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a mentality. You know, I think one thing I would warn against is, you know, we sort of have this notion of buy the dip. And, you know, buy the dip certainly works, but it's a bull market trading strategy. Right? Like if we are if we're in a bull market, which basically means you are continuing to hit new highs. Now it doesn't go straight up. Buy the dip works great. Right. The market goes down five percent, you buy, then it'll hit another high. But I think people have been doing that, and we've seen it a lot sort of with retail investors globally in Australia and the US, where you know. People have gotten into this mentality and they've kept buying the dip. So I just would caution against that. Like, it's very important to have a plan. And, you know, your plan, I don't think people should deviate from their plan. But sort of this notion that you are going to go against your plan and keep shoveling money in every time the market goes down 2% probably isn't a great approach.
1: You mentioned how, you know, investors really piled into these. Kind of more speculative names that aren't making profits. So one great way to kind of avoid that is to go for the higher return on invested capital companies. But something about investors is they just can't kind of keep themselves away from the light. So how do you get investors to, you know, whether it's thinking about cost of capital, whether it's return on invested capital, how do you get investors to move away from the big promise of these Fast growing companies and move more towards the companies that are generating these high returns, high profits, but maybe aren't growing as fast. So it's not as exciting. How can we get investors like flip that mentality?
2: I think there's a couple of different things to, uh, to think about. Number one, I think that we need to realize that, you know, as humans, we are attracted to narratives and, you know, certainly in the investing world, we're attracted to narratives. And, you know, I, you look at, innovation, for example, right? That is a narrative. Now, I think the narrative is BS, for lack of a better uh, way to describe it. But that, is, but that is a narrative, right? That's very attractive to investors. Like we are investing in cutting edge companies that are going to change the world. Well, that doesn't make them good investments. So I think we need to realize that a good story and even a lot of growth does not make a good investment. And, you know, there are examples throughout history. And, you know, one of the kind of easy ones is railroads. And, you know, we forget, like, how big of an innovation railroads were. And they were horrible investments, but they changed the world. There was tremendous growth, but there was so much capital that rushed into that, that as an investor, they all went out of business. Now, what did that benefit? Well, it actually benefited the companies that used the railroads. You know, just like in a more recent example and sort of a similar example, so we go back to the dot-com crash, you know, it was the internet, right? So there's the internet. What does the internet run on? So we need fiber optic cables to, you know, run the internet and spread the internet well where's worldcom and where's global crossing they went out of business the internet didn't go out of business but all the money that was invested there the glut of basically capacity led to all these companies now you know you wouldn't have youtube we wouldn't be doing this we're looking at each other on video i'm in australia we wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't a ton of bandwidth and if it was really cheap like so i think we just have to be careful about those narratives and you know one of my favorite books is, you know, Jeremy Siegel wrote a couple different books, but you know, stocks for the long run and basically went back and looked at what the best returning shares. And I think he wrote this, I think it in the early two thousands, but either way, he looked at a historical period from like nineteen twenty-five on and looked at what company did the best if we look at the US stock market. And it was Philip Morris. And, you know, we sit there and we look at, and Philip Morris, of course, is, and it's split into a couple of companies now, but they make cigarettes. And, you know, if we go back and we think about that period from like 1925 to the early 2000s, we go back and look at that period, we think about everything that happened, you know, like, you know, the automobile be, got mass adopted. We obviously had um, semiconductors invented and computers and the internet and all this stuff. And, you know, smoking actually peaked in the U.S. in the early 60s. Like we obviously know everything that's happened with cigarettes, the government regulation, the uh, lawsuits, the tax increases. So, you know, that's a terrible narrative. But the company just sat there, was very efficient, paid high dividends. You know, those are the good investments like boring over the long term. That works, and so I think we just have to be very wary of those narratives. And if somebody's telling you a story, and they're normally the people telling you these stories, is somebody trying to sell you something? So they're trying to sell you a thematic ETF, they're trying to sell you a product. I just be very wary of that.
1: What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at StockMarketPDF.com. That's really good advice, and also a good book recommendation. I know that book is packed with charts and all this great statistics and information. So, thank you for that. What are your thoughts on ETFs? I kind of peeked, and I saw on your podcast feed that you potentially had a controversial thing to say about ETFs. So, I'm going to completely derail the rest of the conversation because <laughs> I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on ETFs.
2: Yeah, I think the reason the reason we did I don't have a problem with. ETFs per se. But, you know, the reason we did that is because, you know, I think particularly a lot of the investors that have started investing since COVID, which is great, have, you know, been drawn to ETFs. And there's a lot of advantages around ETFs. You know, certainly they are, for the most part, low cost. It is certainly easy to invest in them. I think the problem is, and a lot of this goes back to kind of Vanguard and looking at John Bogle and who hated ETFs, which is interesting, obviously, (laughs) considering Vanguard is obviously a huge provider of ETFs. You know, I think it's the ability to trade something all day means, of course, that people trade stuff all day. And, you know, the example we used on our podcast, a little bit of a crude example, but it's like, if you are trying to you know, stop using drugs, you probably shouldn't fill your house with drugs, right? That's not going to make you use drugs, but it doesn't make it any easier to quit. And I think ETFs encourage trading. And so once again, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with an ETF, but just realize that that ability to sit there now on your phone and trade ETFs while you're in line at the deli is not A good thing. So I think investors just need to take a step back and say, you know, why do I need to trade something all day? Like if I look at a fund versus an ETF, like, you know, what is that ETF giving me that a fund isn't? It's giving me the ability to trade all day and just make sure you don't do it. So that's, I think, all we were saying. So more. More than talking about ETFs, it's just looking at investor behavior and things we know don't work. Chasing returns doesn't work. Overtrading doesn't work. And, you know, ETFs sort of encourage all of that. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries
0: French fries or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod.
1: So, I guess moving forward, I think we can kind of understand that a lot of the speculative names have been smacked. Buying the dip's probably a really bad idea on a lot of those names. You know, we've talked about Companies with moats. Can you give an example of maybe something in your portfolio that is a good example of a strong moat with high returns compared to its cost of capital?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it's bonus points. Nothing. Sorry.
1: Bonus points if it's boring. <laughs>
2: Okay, Boy, I, I think this is kind of boring. So the the big, and I will say that you know, sort of during, I have been building up this cash, and once again, this is all personal, not Morningstar. You know, I have been building up this cash for several years now, and so I went into that COVID market drop with a fair amount of cash, and you know, I probably should have invested more. Thought the market was going to keep going down, so you know, take. Obviously my prediction earlier with the market going down with a grain of salt but you know I bought one thing I bought was constellation brands and so basically constellation brands sells beer I mean they they do a couple other things as well they've got some wine and some sort of not great liquor brands, but really they sell beer and they sell Mexican beer, right? So Corona is kind of their big one, but Modelo as well, Pacifico, and you know at the end of the day, I think this is this is kind of a classic example of a moat from brand. And you know, I don't know what your personal feelings are about Corona, but you know, I don't think it's a great beer. But, you know, if we look at from a brand perspective, what they've built, and I can say Corona to almost anyone in the world, and they're thinking about sitting on a beach, (laughs) being out on a boat. They've built this incredible brand. And the interesting thing about Corona is, so Corona is made with very cheap ingredients. There's no difference, right? Basically between, you know, what goes into a Corona and what goes into any other sort of mass produced beer, but they sell it at a premium price. And so, you know, it's this amazing thing that if you sit there and, like, take Bud Light and all of a sudden, like, jack the prices up by 40%, it's probably not going to do very well. But Corona has been able to do that. So, you know, certainly when we look at the ingredients that go into beer, there are, of course, premium ingredients. And we see a lot of that in premium beers and, you know, different micro brews and everything else that has taken over. But, you know, Corona has that ability to... Go in there and not spend a lot of money on ingredients, but sell at a premium price. So, you know, I think that's an example. And there's all sorts of other reasons, right? There are kind of, you know, secular trends, of course, with the US and demographic shifts that certainly are benefiting them. But I think more than anything else, it's that brand that they've been able to build.
1: You know, it kind of makes me think about something I also think is not talked about enough. I can't remember what the name is, but I know it's like a specific bias where, let's say, somebody would hear that as a potential stock idea opportunity, but you don't like Corona, the brand. And so we tend to think that our own preferences are similar to the way the rest of the world thinks. So we must think, oh, the rest of the world thinks that Corona is a crappy brand. Obviously, the numbers play out a different ways. So I really wonder how many opportunities investors miss out on because they have this sphere of the world that says, well, if I think that this is how a particular business or brand is, that must be how the rest of the world is too.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like it's the Peter Lynch stuff, right? You know, that go buy things that you use and like. And like, hey, I I occasionally drink Corona. Not saying that. I, not saying that I don't. But yeah, I mean, I think people maybe take that mentality a, a little far. You know, there's probably a bunch of people that got a Peloton bike during COVID and decided that this was the best investment ever, and probably aren't too happy about that right now, but yeah, I mean, I think we just have to kind of take a step back and that's why, you know, taking a step back and looking at the fundamentals of a company, just like, I don't think you should go out there and buy a, you know, company that produces beer because you like the beer, but that could be a great investment too. But take a step back and think about, you know, what is it like, what is it about that company? And, you know, a lot of it, you know, if we talk about, if we want to keep using beer examples, like, yeah, there's a lot of good beers, Um, so, you know, I don't think being a good beer is really going to do much for you. I think it's starting to look at sort of cost and brand and, you know, how does that flow into a financial statement?
1: So you mentioned margins, which is one thing people can look at for fundamentals, basically how much revenue do you bring in, what are the costs and then what's the profit. There's two other kinds of margin too, but we don't have to get into, into those, but you know, also return on invested capital, but. Any other key fundamentals that people should look out for as a starting point to say, Hey, these could be good indicators of companies with moats.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think those are probably the two main things I would look at for moats. But the other thing that I think is really important to look at is we have another rating at Morningstar called the uncertainty rating. And basically, you know, what that means is as an analyst and being an analyst, of course, is. I think a pretty difficult thing because you are predicting the future, right? You know, the whole when you are analyzing a share as investors, we just need to be very cognizant that it does not matter what happened in the past, right? Like those and financial statements and everything else like that is all the past. We only look at those as clues into what's going to happen in the future, right? So what an analyst or what any investor is trying to do is predict the future. And we do need to acknowledge and this is where it's around finding a share that's right for you. We do need to acknowledge that the uncertainty around the future, around these future cash flows, is different for different companies. And so, you know, a simple example is that, you know, if I am a small cap company, so I'm a new company, maybe I have one product, I don't have a big history, I'm trying to expand, that's very different than if I'm a large established company, right? So the differences are large established companies generally would have more diverse product ranges. They would generally sell in more markets. So local conditions wouldn't affect them as much. They generally are more financially sound. So they can go out there and raise capital if something bad happens, right? And we saw that during COVID. Saw companies go back and raise capital because they didn't know how they were going to get through this. So I think that doesn't make large cap investing or small cap investing. That's just one example that doesn't make either one good or bad, but it could make it good or bad for you, right? So, you know, how much uncertainty do you want around future cash flows? If I'm Coca-Cola, I can tell you this, like Coke is not going to sell half as much Coke next year or double as much Coke next year, right? You know, that's not going to happen. So it's easy. Like if I'm trying to sit there and predict the future, we're talking maybe a couple percentage revenue up or down, right? Each year. If I'm some small cap biotech company that has a drug that's up for FDA approval, that's a very different range of outcomes. And it's just making sure, and both can be you know, great investments, which is making sure you're comfortable with that and knowing what you're investing in. So I think a lot of people were investing in very speculative shares, right? The fact that you know something like half of the Russell 3000 growth shares- we unprofitable or are unprofitable, you know maybe that's a good or bad thing, like but not all those companies are going to make it
1: yeah those are all really, really good points. You do have to be careful with these unprofitable companies that could potentially go away, and investing is risk versus return and Oftentimes, you do have to take more risk to get more return, but you don't always have to. Dave, did you have anything else?
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Nick Sleep. We mentioned off the air before we came on about what a great investor he is and kind of how unknown he is. And I think all this discussion about moats, I think is probably an appropriate time to maybe talk a little bit about Nick Sleep and some of the things that he advocated for and kind of his uh, investment approach. I think it's something that would be beneficial for investors to hear.
2: Yeah, I think the interesting thing about him, and we did a podcast episode sort of looking at kind of lessons you can take from great investors. Like, I think the interesting thing about him is, you know, we have a lot of advantages as individual investors, and people don't think that we do, right? People think about professionals, and yes, this is their job. There's a lot of things that professional investors generally can't do. So generally, they can't take sort of an unconstrained look at the world, right? Like, you know, and look for different investment opportunities. So generally, they have a mandate. That mandate is generally pretty narrow that, okay, I am a large cap U.S. investor. So if I see some huge opportunity in Europe, that's great. But I can't do that because that's not my mandate. And I think the interesting thing about him and, you know, something that, you know, we should all realize that the advantage of being an individual investor is that he had basically no mandate. And so he could invest in anything he wanted anywhere around the world. And that that is a very freeing thing Um, that there are going to be different opportunities. And, you know, I don't, I certainly don't want people to think that, you know, they should go out there and, you know, continually trade to go try to find these different opportunities. But, you know, you can invest. There is value somewhere in the world at all times, right? And so that doesn't mean selling everything you have and moving everything in there. But it does mean that if we took sort of this wide view of opportunities, it can be a real advantage for us. So I think that's one of the things that sort of we like about him. And we, I'm talking about my podcast partner as well. So... uh you know, she's not here, but uh sort of the royal way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the real things. I don't know. What about you guys? What are some of the things you like about him?
0: I think the thing that I liked about there are multiple things, but everything that we kind of talked about today as far as the fundamentals, those were guiding principles for him. And he really stuck to his guns and was able to. Invest in companies like Amazon and Costco, in particular Amazon, when it would it went down to you know the ninety percent drop, he was able to stay with the company and continue to believe in what they were trying to do based on the business model that they had and where he thought the company was going and I think that's one of the things that I really like about his approach was that he was very determined to kind of you know buy and hold but not buy and hold. Stupidly, but buy and hold is such that he really believed in his convictions of what he thought he was buying and really stuck to his guns with the fundamentals and where he thought the business was going. We were talking earlier about narratives and moats. And I think he was really good at sussing out what a moat for a particular company would be and kind of being able to forecast that into the future. And I think that's kind of a special skill that I think, you know, a rare few people have, you know, Buffett included.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, I think the important thing that we were talking about earlier is, you know, that is having conviction in what you're doing. And, you know, so this notion that there are all types of different approaches you can take to be a successful investor, but there's one that works for you. And, you know, I think a couple of things that you said is from nature and the ability to hold things for a long term is a huge advantage we have as individual investors. And the only way you do that is if you're comfortable. Right, so you know, in the example you you talked about, like you know, if a holding goes down ninety percent, like you need to be very, very comfortable and sure of you know what you're investing in to hold through that. Right, it's very challenging, right. just from an emotional standpoint, more than anything else, to stick with it. And that's you know that's believing in what you're investing in, the approach you're taking. Yeah, totally.
0: Another thing that I really liked about him was his realization that what he was doing is not the end all be all of everything and that he and his partner Zach wrapped up the fund when they could have continued easily continue with what they're doing and made oodles of money, but he and his partner realized that there was more to life than just being the next Warren Buffett and want to call him that. And that's something that I admire that he was able strikes me as somebody that is really motivated by, I
2: guess, a a different set of rules than most of us. It's something that I admire. Yeah. And I think kind of the investing lesson out of that is, you know, when we talk about edge, when we talk about advantages that, you know, we have as individual investors, you know, one of them is sort of this notion of structural edge, right? It's all the things that if I'm doing something professionally, and, you know, we can all think about our own careers, if I'm doing something professionally, what are all the things that are going to drive my decision making that aren't necessarily just purely about my job, right? And number one, it's keeping your job, it's certainly pay, you know, and so, Professional investors are obviously very well compensated. You know, a lot of them, despite what they say, are doing it because of that reason. And that's why they would continue on. Right. And, you know, Buffett, I mean, I think Buffett's a really interesting example. You know, when he wound up his first fund is, you know, it was another sort of crazy bull market. He said, I don't understand what's going on anymore. So I'm just not going to do this and sort of sold out, paid back his partners and. You know, didn't quit because he obviously kept that, you know, little textile mill, Berkshire Hathaway, but basically said, I don't I don't understand this anymore, so I'm walking away. Well, most investors, most professional investors don't do that because, you know, there's a mortgage to pay and there are kids in private school and all sorts of different reasons that are not necessarily and they might sit there at night saying this is a terrible market, but then show up the next day and have to invest. So yeah, I think structural edge is, is an interesting one.
0: Yeah, I think the the last thing that I think I really liked about him was that he really advocated understanding what it was you were buying, and don't buy if you don't. And he, you know, kind of the Buffett idea of you don't have to swing at every pitch kind of thing. And I I think that he was really choosy about the the companies that you invest in, and uh, that's something that I admire. I wish I could I wish I could be more choosy, th- you know, like he was.
2: Yeah, it's that Buffett like circle of competence. Thing, right? That like, I don't know, I see a lot of people invested in things that I know they don't understand. I don't understand, you know, gets back to kind of what we're talking about earlier. It's like fundamental research, like you need to understand the company and understand the industry, and what is going to make them successful in order to, uh, I think, in order to be a successful investor. Yep, I totally agree.
1: Well, Mark, this was a great conversation. So many lessons here for investors to think about and great perspective on what's going on in the markets today, how we can kind of digest that and use that moving forward to make better investments. You have a great podcast, Investing Compass. People should go check it out. You have a lot of great episodes on there. And I've heard you talk about Nick's sleep on there. We mentioned you talked about ETFs too. So definitely people should check that out. Anywhere else people can go online to find out more about what you got going on?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, just Googling my name, I I do publish a fair amount of articles on our website down in Australia. But of course, because it's the internet, you can read it anywhere. So yeah, I would go look at that as well.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, again, Mark, we really, really do appreciate you getting up at six o'clock in the morning to come talk to us today. This was an awesome conversation and we had a lot of fun. And I know our listeners will get a lot out of all the wisdom that you were dropping with everything today. So uh, thank you again for taking the time to come join us and everybody go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week.
1: We hope you enjoyed this content. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?